Welcome to Failing Forward. Thanks so much to everybody who's joining us. Today, we're talking about the myths around adaptation and adaptive management. So can you both introduce yourselves for the audience today? Sure, shall I go first? Uh, <laughs> hi, Emily, thanks, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, so I'm uh, Royan Bolling, uh, working as a knowledge broker at uh, The Broker, which is a knowledge broker in consultancy where I've worked for the past eight years uh, doing all kinds of uh, research projects that are about making knowledge work, really work for sustainable development, you know, to make it uh, accessible, make sure that people use it, uh, kind of bank on the experience that is already collectively there, but often uh, which is not used. Uh, this is also why I really appreciate the... Uh, you know, the, the topic of this podcast, because I think it fits really well with the, the work that we do. Yeah, and uh, my name is Hannah Itkovitz. Actually, really great to be here. And also with Ryan, because he's actually an old colleague of mine. I was also with the broker for, I think, about three years. Um, I've recently just started working for the World Benchmarking Alliance um, as a research analyst, uh, scoring and ranking big corporations on their sustainability performance and also working with governments and investors to add some pressure from that side. So it's also really great to tap back into uh, the work I was doing with the broker and continue sort of the impact of that. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. So today we're talking about the myths on adaptive management, about things that we sort of all believe to be true, but really aren't. Why is it important for us to talk about that and for us to talk about what's not working? Um, well, maybe to clarify, you know, the, the project that we did was not only about adaptive management, but also about flexibility, you know, because, you know, in these, these programs that have uh, adaptive management approaches, really there's a, a set approach a way a method to build in this learning and then adaptation but actually there's a lot of programs that are also adapting while they don't take this approach so we actually focus a little bit more on that flexibility uh, than on the adaptive management programs but we we did uh, we did also take them into account and together with our partner zoa actually uh, included some people from the adaptive management program in the design of the guidance that we uh, developed uh, but, you know, coming back to myths, I think myths, uh, it's interesting um, because I think it was actually a myth that started up the, uh, this project because uh, in an earlier learning trajectory, uh, I was facilitating a conversation between a uh, practitioner and a policymaker at the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And we were talking about the humanitarian development peace nexus. Uh, and uh, we had been exploring that theme and also how to, you know, uh, create pathways between different types of programming from more emergency type programming toward more development type programming and how you can switch between them. And the practitioner, she was saying to the policymaker, well, you know, actually, uh, one thing that we really need is to be, uh, that it's possible, you know, that, to have more flexibility in our programs to be able to switch and do the things that we need to do in the moment when a crisis erupts and it bites, uh, or maybe more even flooding happens, something like this. And then the policymaker responded and said, well, actually, um, you already have that option. It's just that you are not using it. And I think that this is what started us thinking, you know, is this actually uh, really true? Uh, and that, that is what started off the project. And I think, you know, that's a kind of indication where some assumptions that you have, they turn out, they, they kind of turn into a sort of truth uh, and then you don't really question it anymore. And I think it's really powerful to be able to get those assumptions to the surface and, and question them because, Actually, in this case, this myth, I think, is uh, limiting the, the, uh, the possibilities or limiting the impact that, uh, that uh, organizations can have uh, if they feel the need to be more flexible. And actually, they can be more flexible. 
Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Sort of the simple answer for me is that, that having these myths and assumptions is really what gets in the way of effective planning and effective implementation. Um, we came across so many examples of where responses could be delayed or or funds were tied up elsewhere um, and local needs ended up not being met. And this was due to myths and assumptions from both sides, not just from one type of actor. I think it was both from the donors and the practitioners. And um, that's why I think it is so important to talk about I don't really like the word failures because I think it's the, it kind of creates this assumption itself that like things have been done wrong or were misplanned. But in this context, especially, it's I'd say a lot of the projects in the beginning, at least in their design phase, really had activities that were really well fitting to address the problems. It's just that the reality was changing over time. And it was almost like, oh, we, we just need to bulldoze forward with the original plan because there's only a, a year of funding anyways, or because we don't want to seem like we're failing. Um, so it's just about having that honest conversation and maybe, maybe re- um, conceptualizing failure in our heads as really an opportunity just to learn and do better. So I think that's why it's really important to talk about. Yeah, maybe to add on to what I just said, you know, the myth uh, of having this flexibility or not, it could just as well have been a myth in the head of the policymaker that thought we, we are doing the right things, uh, but it's actually the practitioners that are at fault. So, you know, that's why, you know, these things that start to exist in people's minds, it's really good to get them to the surface. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask which part of that was a myth that they had the flexibility or that they didn't have the flexibility because I've seen both of them depending yeah. on the context. We've definitely seen both of those in, in different examples and that was what was so interesting about this project. It wasn't a case of um, oh this whole thing needs to change. It was looking at oh, here's some really good examples and we can all talk about this together. So tell us about the myths. The article that I read was four myths in development. What are in, in flexibility and development? What are they? I think um, the biggest one for me was that if you're being flexible, you can't be accountable or you can't trace your funding to certain activities. And I think, um, yeah, there was a really clear trade off in people's minds between flexibility and accountability. And we were trying to show through examples that there are ways that you can do both, that you can report after the fact that you can have risk mitigation strategies in your proposal. So it's not doesn't come as a surprise or you can stay accountable to your high level goals whilst changing activities that better suit what's going on on the ground. So uh, this was the biggest one, I think, for me, that you can be flexible and accountable. Um, and then I think the other one that was stood out for me was that um you there was a myth that you can just be adaptable in the moment without actually planning for flexibility and planning for changes especially in very fragile and dynamic contexts so it was really about being proactive instead of reactive we saw a lot of cases where something happened in the context and they had to be very reactive and there wasn't enough time to source new supplies or transport things to different places or get new staff in and this takes time so really thinking about this in advance and thinking about not just what's happening right there but um, institutionally trying to create more flexibility in your frameworks and also through your relationships having roles and responsibilities um, that are really in line with being flexible. So those two for me. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe uh, to add on to that, I think the, I maybe we'll go into it more in detail later, but the framework that we kind of developed uh, in the course of the project, it highlights the different ways in which you can be flexible, actually. And I think that's also 
that means you know about flexibility acting on the moment that that is just the kind of operational flexibility and you can arrange that with through your ME systems uh, etc you know to make sure that you get the right information and act on it but there's also these other aspects like this institutional flexibility do people know how to do it do they have the right role divisions etc and relational flexibility you know how do you communicate what agreements do you have with your consortium partners these are all things that you can prepare in advance to be more accountable to have a more methodical approach uh, to this flexibility even if you're not in an adaptive uh, program uh, i think the, the final uh, myth that i would add that is also in that article is that flexibility it's all it's it's not always the solution also you know it's not it's not that we're saying everybody needs to be flexible uh, all the time uh, i think what what was one of the key points that we got from the conversations we had with all the, the people in different programs uh, is that you know if you want to be flexible you you can do it within certain boundaries you can still uh, work towards food security for instance you know yeah that's something that we see a lot where different people who are all at the donor angle of things and and we see that a lot where you know the person at the head headquarters will tell you absolutely be as flexible as you want but the person who's in charge of the contract and procurement tells you exactly the opposite do you see that happen a lot where different stakeholders even inside the same organization have different parameters for how flexible you're allowed to be uh, i think one of the main things that we uh, that came out of this conversation is that it's it's just very important to have in the first place this conversation about what you expect from each other. Even within the same organization, I think a lot of it also depends on where the decision-making power lies. So um, we saw some examples of where there was some room for flexibility within the overall budget, but this um you know, the people who were allowed to spend the money didn't always have this, this uh, autonomy to make the decisions about changes to go along with that and still needed to ask permission from the donor and get this signed off by multiple people higher up. So even within an organization, I think, depending on your responsibilities as well and depending on um, and, and we saw this mismatch between, you know, the people who are closest really to what's going on on the ground. They're probably the best informed to be making those in in like in the moment changes and know what's best and what's going to help. Um, but that doesn't always those people don't always have, like I said, that that power to make that choice. So um, that was also something really important. So, yes, in answer to your question. Yeah, true. And I think, I, you know, what we also saw is that people sometimes reported that the that, that people they knew or maybe them, they themselves, they also were a bit hesitant to report uh, the need for change because they assumed it would be seen as failure. Uh, so one of the things we also recommend is try to, to see uh, these changes not as failures, but as successes, actually, because you are changing uh, to get better results. Uh, you are changing to respond to the situation as it evolves. Um, so actually, if you are reporting that, you know, what we're doing now, we, it would be better to do something else. Uh, I think that can only be seen as a success. So you said originally that the sort of genesis for this project came from a conversation about the humanitarian development peace nexus, and that that's obviously a space where everyone acknowledges context change very quickly. What can people who are outside of that context learn from those approaches, right? A lot of this sort of flexibility arises from the idea that, well, the context might change, but sometimes you might just learn something's not working and it's not because there was a crisis of some kind. It's just, you look at it and you see it's not doing what you want. How can you apply what you learned in other contexts? 
I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned was breaking breaking the whole thing down into different smaller components. So we we've already mentioned like this institutional, operational, relational flexibility, which is a bit of a mouthful, but also looking at the different stages of what your program is in. Um, and I think one of the the good things we did that's also part of knowledge brokering is going, okay, now that we know all of this, what can we do right now? Are there any sort of low-hanging fruit, small changes that we can make today? And what sorts of changes need to happen slowly over time? Um, so I think that applies to any program, not just those in fragile and dynamic contexts. I think there's always an opportunity to be more reflective, to have more um, informal conversations about how the situation is progressing to have more qualitative evaluations as well not just making your evaluations say whether you hit those targets and met those statistics or not I think qualitative evaluations can be very rich and informative about any program um, even if you wouldn't change anything today to learn next time over would you would you repeat the same way or would you do something different so I don't think that these these lessons um, apply specifically to, I mean, the, there were specific lessons, for example, why the flexibility is not happening. That was a really interesting question for me. If we can see that it helps, why has it not been done? Um, and so maybe those sorts of things applied more to the examples we were looking at. But these general, this general approach to being flexible, I think, um, is not specific to that context. Yeah, what you see also with the HCP nexus discussion and outside the HCP nexus, of course, in those crisis contexts or often protracted crisis contexts, um, you know, you may be implementing a program and all of a sudden something happens, uh, you need to change uh, gears. Uh, and, uh, you know, then, you know, maybe you need to do some humanitarian type work. Um, but there's also the question of going the going back in the other direction. You know, maybe the humanitarian crisis or some kind of shock only is once every year for a month or so, and the rest of the year you can just do kind of more regular recovery or uh, resilience type of programming. I think there um, it was interesting that uh, I think it was the Norwegian Refugee Corps. They had uh, three different uh, intervention phases that they kind of qualified and quantified how when you actually came into that phase and when you switched back so there was one that was for acute emergencies one was for early recovery one for stabilized so they kind of organized the process of going back and forth between these uh, these different stages yeah i think what, what i was just mentioning about the, the learning to have manage people's expectations and have i think more qualitative evaluations i think also um dedicating specific people to these sorts of things. And there was a lot of examples we saw where they had um, specific coordinators there to monitor the need for change and, and sort of assess whether that was being done in good time and in an appropriate way. And then also how that would be fed back to, to donors if that was um, necessary for their reporting. So having people there also to to capture these learnings and to capture, um, yeah, just to monitor this and be, have that responsibility of saying, um, knowing when it's time to, to make annotations. I think that was a big lesson as well that could be taken. Yeah, true. And um, I think one organization also, I, maybe it was World Vision, they kind of organized this feedback mechanism from communities uh, in the field 
where they identified events uh, and opportunities that the programmers either hadn't noticed or didn't see as problematic yet. So I think these feedback mechanisms with communities, of course, they, they do happen to some extent in programs. Uh, but I think this is something that you could organize anywhere. Hannah, one of the things you mentioned was everybody sort of acknowledges flexibility is a good idea, but it's often not happening. Why not? What were some of those barriers people talked about? Um, I think we've mentioned a couple of them already, this sort of the fear of looking wrong. And I think there's such a big competition for funding going on that, um, yeah, sometimes everyone wants to look like they're doing it all perfect and you can wrap that program up in a little bow and say, this is what we achieved and it was what we set out to achieve. And then, so I think that, that fear of looking wrong or maybe losing a contract or losing funding from someone was a big one. Um, and about the accountability, this pressure for results, this pressure to stay accountable to different stakeholders and funders. And if it's a government funding, then to taxpayers and things. So um, those two things from different sides, I think, added together to really be a barrier. Um, and then other things to do with, I guess, outdated evaluation models where you only look at the end of the program to do your evaluation and there was a bit of pushback on that one because it's not really feasible to every week be spending two hours evaluating a program especially if they need to be out there in the field and, and doing rather than writing you know things to fit in this reporting framework so I don't think that that was really a good outcome but having more moments of informal conversation to give updates um, rather than yeah, like I said these these old models where you only write this big report at the end. Um, and the other one was, I think, that just, and also to acknowledge that there has been a lot of progress in this area. There's been multi-year funds and much more predictability, I think, in funding. Um, but there's a lot of cases where it still remains very earmarked to specific activities. And it's also still held a little bit too high up the aid chain. Like I said, not the autonomy at more local level where it's very effective. So yeah, these small changes, um, but not quite having the, I guess, systemic change that's needed. Um, but I think for me, the most too was this um, misunderstanding, I think, of what each, what different actors need. Um, and I think that could be solved a lot through these, through these sorts of conversations. Um, I think that is one big barrier that, I mean, we haven't been able to solve of that I hope some creative mm -hmm. people in the field uh, could find a solution to that. I mean, uh, I guess it's a problem for adaptive management program as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this plays in different levels because, you know, you, you might not have a consortium, but you, you may just be one organization implementing a project. Uh, but then if you have staff that is used to working in humanitarian or recovery areas, they may not have the technical expertise to uh, then all of a sudden switch to another kind of activity that is needed. So there's also a part about staff capacity to deliver a certain type of programs. Uh, there's a part about staff capacity to recognize uh, when a change is needed. And, and because of the technical expertise, to also envision, you know, what can we then do? One question I have is, is there such a thing as too much flexibility? You talked about if you're spending every week lots of hours on what's the adaptation and what's our evidence and all of that. We've seen that where so much time is taken up in the planning and the gathering of evidence and the indicators that there's no time left for implementation. And, and then it's really frustrating and overwhelming for the staff. Did that come up in any of your conversations? Yes, 100%. I think 
also when there's too much flexibility you can almost start to lose your credibility and continuity also with with the people that are you're trying to help um so I think one of the most important things to remember is staying true to the the broader objectives of what you're trying to do. So you're, we're not advocating for just suddenly changing your target group or diverting all of your funds to somewhere else and, and losing that continuity and those relationships also that you've been building. Um, so I think it's important to to have that like in the beginning when you're when you're sort of initiating the first ideas and thinking about what are the sorts of risks in this context? What could happen and how would we respond? I think you can't, you can, you need to have those really detailed conversations um, early. You can change things too much, too fast and too often. <laughs> no, I totally agree. You don't really have much to add uh, to that. Indeed, you know, people are also very busy. It's, it's, it's hard enough to implement a, a program. Then if you have to have all kinds of learning discussions all the time, it feels like a burden to people. It's something that came up in a project I was working on once that was across several different parts of the same donor. And there were all of these conversations about you have to be really flexible and here's how you can do the flexibility and the flexible planning and everything else. And it was a huge amount of time spent on the front end of that. And then at the end, the person who literally signed the checks, right? The person who said either, yes, you've met the criteria such that you get the money or you haven't said, oh, I'm not going to pay attention to any of those things. I'm going to look at your original contract and that's what I'm going to do. And it was just so deflating yeah. to have spent all of this time and built all of these expectations and then have one person who was relatively junior in the chain say, absolutely none of that will result in changes because I won't accept them. How do you get around that? How do you make sure that the right people are in the room? Yeah, well, one thing that just sprung to my mind when you gave that example was um, we found that where relationships have existed for longer it was much easier so if there's uh trust between I, I don't know how what the relationship was with that guy who signed off the <laughs> contract but you know if he could put his trust in you know I've worked with these people many times before and I'm I'm solid in my understanding that they will do the right thing and that it won't come back to um to bite me you know so I think in those situations where there has been um longer time for the relationships to develop it was definitely much easier to make those changes and to, to have those conversations than new partners yeah yeah and i think this is also why we were asked to create these handouts so we have one you know how do you have a conversation with your donor but also how do you have a conversation inside your consortium at the start of a project about who gets to decide about what who needs to be at the table what kind of role divisions can we uh, do is there one coordinator for any kind of flexibility actions uh, do we need to sit in consortia things? Um, yeah. How do we actually organize this when the time uh, comes? So I think what Hannah just said earlier, you know, at the start of a program, uh, maybe in the development uh, phase, I guess, uh, that is where you need to have such conversations. And if you have them then, then it's a lot easier to have the, have the conversation uh, while you're implementing, because this is something that also came up through the discussions. You know, many people were saying, actually, oh, kind of expecting by taking part in the meeting to already learn how to be more flexible in the program that they are implementing. But you know what, once you're going and you didn't discuss this, then it becomes a lot harder. So we didn't, couldn't give them, you know, these, these ready-made solutions, right? So if you do this, then from now on, you can be flexible. No, you, know, you kind of need to build that flexibility. 
Mm. In there, there is of course already room to be flexible, but it becomes much much easier if you have the, the conversations mm. up front. Yeah, and yeah, it's not about um, blaming anyone in particular. I think I think you're in a list of questions you'd ask, sort of, how do these myths even come around in the first place, and how do they get um, perpetuated? And I think that um, sometimes things just seem common knowledge because everybody works that way, and then it's really difficult to instigate a shift away from this status quo, especially when it involves a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk. Um, and then sometimes when best practices or ideas about best practices are coming from the top or from the outside, it, it can have a bit more weight or buy-in in people's minds than listening to uh, local people or, or representatives of them, of those who work directly with the affected communities. Um, and then for some of the assumptions, there have been experiences that do validate them. Like there have been cases where NGOs have misspent money or not been transparent and, and it has reduced trust in some places, but you know, that's the cases of, of a few ruining it for everybody else. So there's, I think there's, it's one of those things where there's a whiff of truth that then just gets blown into this full blown, like this is, the way that we do it and yeah it's it's difficult to break out of that yeah it's I was just describing to someone my first experience in international development was living in a community as a last mile extension worker on a giant NGO project um, and the number of times that somebody would come in and say this is how it should happen and I would say that's never going to work here it's never going to work. I know that already in this community. And they would say, well, it's it's best practice and you just don't know. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. um, best practice, where? Um, yeah. But nobody starts doing something because they think it will fail, right? Nobody starts with the knowledge that this is a terrible idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. But these myths are built in. It always seems like it would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. You've talked about, sort of that qualitative, how do we check in? How do we understand if it's on track or it's not? How do we build more space for that? What would you recommend? I think, um, I think like we said, the, you don't want to spend too much time with all these buried under papers and things, but I think that building in regular informal check-ins can can really help building it in, uh, in reporting, just a little space for comments and things. I, yeah. So we've talked a lot about things that go wrong and how has that happened? Do you have any examples you want to share of things that go right? Recommendations you would make that people do that seem like they are working? I think we came across a lot of interesting things that people were doing uh, in terms of uh, flexible ways of working. There was the, the crisis modifier pilot by Oxfam Novit in Somalia where they already transferred a lump sum fund to their local partners uh, at the start of the program, just for use in uh, the event of a crisis so that they didn't have to ask for any transfers to be made and just could just go ahead. Uh, I think they also agreed uh, about these roles and responsibilities uh, that there was a 24 hour deadline. Uh, you know, if you uh, submit an application to make a change to get the green light from the field coordinator to implement it, so that it can also be a fast, uh, um, a fast way to implement this flexibility. Uh, I already talked about these, uh, I think it was the NRC that classified these different phases and that type of activities they would do in the certain uh, phases. Um, let's see, uh, uh, you know, try to avoid this complicated decision-making chains. 
Um, mm. I think at World Vision, I think it was in Mali, uh, the field office uh, is, was actually able to uh, already implement temporary changes directly and then only needed to inform uh, any support offices after, you know, to, to eliminate a long communication chain. Um, maybe you have some other examples, uh, Hannah. Yeah, I remember some good examples of um, risk assessments written in the proposals, like built into the project proposals. And um, some of them are quite extensive, really doing a really extensive context mapping. Um, it was sometimes just that then later on and down the program, they were not referred back to, um, to really. So I thought they were, they were excellent examples of how you can already do this from the beginning. Um, but then I think they need to come back to them and say, okay, is this still, are these risks still here and have they manifested or have they not manifested and, um, checking back in with the work that had been done. So those are good examples of that as well. Um, and also I think that, the the Dutch government especially was already seen as being quite flexible and giving a lot more um, yeah decision making power to practitioners than perhaps other governments were doing. So that was always some, some positive feedback that we got from them. <laughs> yeah, there was a great example, not from this project, but from another project, a big uh, program implemented by the Dutch uh, government where they kind of, I think it was about supporting civil society and they asked organizations to, you know, be a little bit more uh, creative, I, I guess, you know, still accountable, but, but do something else than create log frames uh, and uh, report very uh, quantitatively back to us. So there was a lot of room to, to create different types of ME frameworks and uh, accountability frameworks. And then uh, what they saw was actually that um, many of the organizations that uh, started to develop programs, they still did the thing with the log frames and all the very, uh, because I guess first, because they're familiar with it, but one important part of it is also because, you know, there's a lot of other donors out there that are a little bit more uh, working from this traditional approach. And sometimes it was just easier to do everything in the same way across all the donors. So then if you, even if you have one flexible donor, then you may still be limited by, by the other donors and the requirements they put on, uh, on organizations in the field. That's certainly our experience. We work with a lot of different donors and in some ways the most stringent, least flexible one controls a lot of the behavior because people get used to having that reflex of, Mm -hmm. there is a concern there and if we don't do this right that derails so strongly um, that that's something we definitely see happen how would you recommend to make this more we started by talking about their myths on on all sides right different people have a story about oh we've given you a lot of flexibility or oh there isn't any and either mm -hmm. of those statements could be a myth or maybe they both are Mm -hmm. How do you think about bringing more stakeholders into this conversation over the long term, not one project at a time, but on a bigger scale? I mean, we saw how successful it was, the the sort of workshops that we did, and there was a lot of feedback. They said, hey, we never get together in a room and talk about this sort of thing. And even even when I was preparing for, for this podcast today, I was, because I still remember the project very well and the, and the key findings and things like this, but it was really bringing back this 
sentiment when I was talking to people, the frustrations and the being feeling misheard and these 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 things that these emotions that were coming out around this topic that I think people are really wanting to to get out. And we had a lot of people really enjoyed those conversations saying we yeah, we we never just get in a room and, and talk about this. And I don't know if it would take like um more workshops like that um on a broader scale if you could have these um I don't know what you would call them. Yeah, like learning workshops um, and invite different people on like a semi-annual uh, basis. Um, but I think, yeah, these, these just creating these moments and it can also be done through us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I'm, what I'm exploring together with the Netherlands Food Partnership, which was another important partner for this, uh, this project because they, they actually funded it. So it's important to mention it. We're exploring if we can set up like a, a, I don't know, a webinar course or a training course where people can come together and actually learn about how to do it. Because that is one thing that we also noticed during the course of this project that it, actually the conversation was just starting. And it, it may be very helpful for people to just bring in their case and just talk about with others, you know, what's your experience? How can we improve this on a very specific case-to-case -case, uh, basis with some, with some good examples? So this is something we, I've been trying to have contact also with the Dutch Relief Alliance, for instance, which is an alliance of organizations working in crisis contexts. Uh, but there's also other, you know, uh, how would you say that umbrella organizations, network organizations and work together with them to set up something where we can, uh, yeah, we can actually work with people to implement some of these, uh, these guidance uh, documents. Because I think there's one aspect of it that is awareness and by being in the podcast already and writing a blog, an article, et cetera, spreading it around, that is one part of that raising awareness. But uh, what you, you know, what also knowledge brokering is about, that it's not just about uh, creating this knowledge, co-creating knowledge, getting, you know, getting together what people already know, trying to implement it into a usable format but also then working with people to actually implement it. Uh, so we indeed are looking for ways to, to do that further. So if anybody is listening actually and says, well, you know, we could uh, use a workshop like that, please do send us an email and we can see what we can, uh, we can arrange, yeah. All right, as we're wrapping up today, do you have any sort of final pieces of advice or last thoughts you wanna make sure that the audience hears from you? I was thinking about this when, when you send an email, I think just start early start early with this stuff i think that was for me the key thing that came out of it and and uh like we started like i started by saying right at the beginning like don't be don't be afraid of failing and and don't be afraid of talking about it because i think that's really the crux here is um only by doing that can we make improvements on what we've done before so yeah, I agree that having conversations about flexibility upfront and also in construction with donors, that is the most important thing. Great. Thank you. And um, so thank you for your time and for sharing some of your expertise with us today.